This morning we continue with Mary. We started in the first uh, chapter of Luke last week, uh, looking at Gabriel's visitation to her and all that she saw about God and herself. And then we see the sequel uh, this morning as she goes to her cousin Elizabeth's house. So beginning in verse 39 of chapter 1 of Luke's Gospel. In those days Mary arose and went with haste to the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud voice, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, The baby in my womb leaped for joy, and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for He has looked on the humble estate of His servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For He who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with Elizabeth about three months and returned to her home. The year was 1942. The man was in the army in officer training in Monmouth, New Jersey. The woman was from Pittsburgh. She and her family and some friends, girlfriends, were down at the shore in New Jersey, and it was summertime. The girl from Pittsburgh saw an advertisement that there was going to be a USO dance. It was going to be in Asbury Park. And so she came home and told her girlfriends, let's go to that dance, and so they did. And there at that dance, she was seated... And this man saw her. And as soon as he saw her, he reached in his pocket and pulled out four dimes. It was a dime a dance. He went up to her and said, I'd like to dance with you four times. He said that was the best 40 cents he ever spent. Because at the end of the night, he got her phone number. Months later, he's on a troop train that's going from Missouri to New York. Everybody on that train was to be shipped out to England and then go over to the coast of France on D-Day. They didn't know that at that time. And so the train is coming through Pittsburgh. And about Youngstown, one of the soldiers on that train grows deathly ill. The commanding officer says, is it bad? He said, yeah, it's bad. So they stop in Pittsburgh. 
And this man who had danced three months earlier is called on to escort the sick guy to Allegheny General Hospital. When he gets there, it's diagnosed he has an acute appendicitis, appendix, needs to be removed, and so it's a midnight surgery. And as that escort is waiting, he pulls out his wallet, finds the woman's number, and gives her a call. It's two in the morning. I mean, imagine calling somebody at two in the morning. She's awake. And she answers. And they talk for an hour and a half. And when they're ready to hang up, he said, when I get back from Europe, I'd like to come to Pittsburgh and meet your family. Three years, six months later, he gets in his car in Ohio, drives to Pittsburgh, meets her family. In two weeks, they're engaged. And in a few more weeks, they're married. After eight dates. Some of you know them. Don and June Huffman. Five years ago, had the privilege of burying Don. He was like a second father to me. Then last Saturday, June. You think of it, four dimes, four dances, four years, and eight dates. It's all it takes to get married. And it's really an amazing story, and yet compared to Mary's story, it's not so amazing. I mean, think about what Luke's told us. Gabriel, the only angel in Scripture who is most associated with judgment. There's only two named in the Scripture, Michael and Gabriel, and he's the one that comes in judgment. Daniel chapter 8, the book of First Enoch. And here he comes to a young, somewhere between 13 and 15-year-old girl who's betrothed to be married, and he speaks to her words of grace. And you know what she does? Luke says immediately she takes off on a journey. She hurries. The word there means with speed and expectancy. Eagerness. Do you know how far she went? Somewhere between 80 and 100 miles. That terrain she traversed, the Badlands. <laughs> now some say Joseph, her betrothed, arranged for her to go in a caravan. There's no biblical evidence of that. Some say she just took it upon herself to join a caravan. No biblical evidence of that. Some say she went with her closest friends. Nothing in the Bible that says that. We don't know how she got there. All we know is she did. Somewhere between eight and ten days, if she's going with speed. She's pregnant. She's vulnerable. And yet she goes with eagerness. And the question is why? Why is she eager to go see her cousin? And the answer is she has news. She has news to share, but when she gets there, she recognizes the real reason for her eagerness. She's got news to hear. 
Because the Bible says when she enters the house, two things happen. The baby in Elizabeth's womb, six months gestation, he leaps for joy. And then the second thing is Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit. Now in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit came upon people. But here Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit. 150 years ago, Dr. R.A. Torrey, he and his wife had to bury a 12-year-old daughter. She was a tragic accident. And he writes about it. He said, the day of her funeral, it was gloomy and rainy. And as we stood by the grave and watched her casket lowered into the ground, my wife said to me, aren't you glad that Elizabeth's not in that box? but she's with the Lord. And I said to her, yes, but I was lying. There was no gladness in me. I knew where she was, but I didn't feel it. For more than a year, I was despondent. I wondered if I could go on. Then one day, something amazing happened to me. I was walking down the street. The Holy Spirit came on me in such power I've never known before. It was the most joyful moment of my life. Suddenly, I discovered that a joy that is not determined by things around me, it's not determined by my friends, not determined by my family. It was a fountain of joy springing up in all the circumstances of life. And suddenly, I was filled with gladness. That's what happens to Elizabeth. When Mary enters their house, the baby leaps, and the Holy Spirit fills Elizabeth. Now think of this. This is the third divine exposure in one chapter. The first exposure... Gabriel comes to the priest Zechariah. Gabriel reveals the Lord to the priest Zechariah through his voice. The second exposure, Gabriel comes to Mary and reveals the Lord through his voice. But the third exposure is more profound than all of them. Because the Bible says that when Mary enters that house, the Holy Spirit fills Elizabeth and Mary gets the sequel of God's exposure through her cousin. This is the greatest exposure of all because it's not through an angel, it's not through a vision. It's through a person in whom the Holy Spirit dwells. You see, when Mary speaks to Elizabeth, it's the Lord Jesus in her womb that causes Elizabeth for the fetus in her womb to jump for joy. And it's the voice of the God, God through Mary that causes the Holy Spirit to fill Elizabeth. And she calls out with a loud voice. And then Mary responds with, cry, with a cry, with a, with a song. 
In fact, it's been called the best Christmas carol ever written. It's the final product of God's exposure to Mary before Jesus is born. It's the fruit of God exposing Himself to Mary. So let's dig in. First of all, notice the cause of the song. Look at verse 39. In those days Mary arose and went with speed and eagerness to the hill country to a town in Judah. Now think of what she's doing. She's acting on her confession. Remember what she had said to Gabriel? She said, Behold, I am a slave, a bond slave of the Lord for life. A few years before Mary was born, Rome had enacted a new law. It said that nobody born free could be a slave. You know the unintended consequences of that law? People were enslaving themselves to someone, getting all the proceeds because when you became a slave in that society, you received some payment from the one who was your master. And then after you receive the payment, these people would have two of their friends come and attest to the fact that they were born free. And so the master would have to let them loose. And the result of that was havoc in the Roman economy. I mean, people were paying money for slaves who were then saying, I can't be a slave because I'm more free, and they're out the money, and they're out the slave. And so a few years before Mary was born, Rome changed that law. They said it didn't matter how you were born, if you became a slave, you were a slave for life, if you're a bond slave. So think of what Mary is saying to the Lord. Behold, I am your bond slave for life. I can never go free. And so here's a slave. She goes all the way to Elizabeth. Think of the irony. When Elizabeth's baby is conceived, she's an old woman. Her decades of scorn is lifted. No longer is she barren. I mean, think of that. When John the Baptist takes shape in her womb, it frees her from all the social stigma she ever had. But when Mary conceives a baby, it sentences her to a life of social scorn. She's a nobody. She's an outcast. We know she's poor in the extreme because nine months later, after the birth, or after this point, she goes to the temple and has to offer two pigeons the price to redeem the firstborn of her womb who was a boy the price that a poor person would pay. And yet at the sound of her cousin's voice, she's overwhelmed with the wealth of her son. Listen to what Elizabeth says. Why has the mother of my Lord come to see me? 
And immediately when Mary hears that, everything that Gabriel had said to her comes into focus. Do you remember? When Gabriel spoke to her, Luke says she was troubled. She tried to discern. Remember, he repeats that. She tried to discern. She tried to discern what is the meaning of this statement. She's got questions. Do you know where they're answered? They're answered in the house of Elizabeth. And you know something? There's a lesson there, and the lesson is this. We need each other. When Mary hears the words of Gabriel, she's troubled. She's trying to figure them out. What do they mean? She figures it all out in the presence of Elizabeth. I love the story C.S. Lewis tells. He said for over 20 years, he and three other men used to spend a a few nights a week together. They'd go to the pub, have a few pints, and they'd talk about life. They loved each other's company. And then Lewis said, one day Charlie died. And the part of Ronald that Charlie brought out was lost. I lost the part of Ronald that Charlie brought out. You get that? In other words, we need each other. Most of what I know about the Lord, I've learned through others in whom He dwells. Think of Elizabeth. Think of Mary. Without Elizabeth, Mary would not have had a song. Without the Holy Spirit speaking through her cousin, there would be no Magnificat. What's the cause of the song? God's exposure to Mary through Elizabeth. Second, notice the composition of the song. Look at verse 46. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. If you read this song carefully, you'll find that three verses she refers to me, and six verses she refers to he. There's a huge shift that takes place. She begins, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Three my's. See what this exposure to Elizabeth has done for her? It's caused her to know who she really is. I am a sinner in need of a Savior, but at the same time, I'm holy and blameless in the Lord's sight. She comes to know herself. Just like Job, just like Elijah, just like Joshua, just like Jacob, just like Sarah, just like Hagar, just like Abraham, just like all the other people we've looked at. She's not saying I turned over a new leaf. She's not saying I've found some secret code. She's saying I've been shaken to the depth 
I thoroughly am exposed. Suddenly, I know who I am. I'm a sinner. I'm a servant. I'm a saint. And if you're a Christian, so are you. Her song is your song and my song. And then third, notice the climax. Look at verse 51. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. Three verses are about Mary. Six verses are about the baby in her womb. At a time when the natural disposition of every mother's heart would be to sing about herself and her own feelings, she sings about the child. Now she started on her way last week when Gabriel exposed her. Remember her me's went to we's. But now the me's go to he. I mean, how different from most Christmas carols we sing today. Have you ever thought about how sentimental most of the Christmas carols we sing are? Listen to this one. The, cattles are, the cattle are lowing, the baby awakes. Little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. I love thee, Lord Jesus. And I've often wondered, does he love him because he's not wailing? <laughs> I mean, there's nothing worse than, than a baby's cry to drive you bananas. I mean, I love you, Lord Jesus, because you don't make a sound. <laughs> There's none of that in Mary's song. This is the most unsentimental Christmas carol in the world. Listen to what she says. He has brought down the mighty and exalted the humble. Meaning what? Meaning everything that I thought the Messiah would do, he doesn't do. And everything I didn't think he'd do, he does. (laughs) You see what Mary's singing? The winds of grace are blowing and they will either save you or destroy you. Look who she says will be destroyed. The high and the mighty. Look who will be saved. The humble, the hungry, and the poor. Aren't those the same three categories of people that Jesus says He's come to save? He lifts up the desperate. Those who know that they're bad will get in and those who think they're good will be barred from getting in. I mean, this is a radical message to the self-righteous. And it's the same message Jesus preaches. You think you have it all together? I'll scatter you. You know that you're scattered? I'll gather you. In verse 52, Mary uses a word that's poorly translated in every English translation. It's translated humble in English. But the word in Greek means poor. It's the same word Jesus will use in Luke chapter 6. Blessed are the poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. I mean, all through the Old Testament, God tells us He's on the side of the poor, the outcasts, the aliens. 
Remember the vulnerable, the orphan, the widow, the poor, the outcast, the alien. I'm on the side of the broken and battered, the Lord said. I'm on the side of the weak and the helpless. And now, according to Mary, He's come to prove it. What Mary is singing is Micah 6, 6-8. And what she's saying is, the baby in my womb will prove the veracity of those words. I mean, think of what the world says to the poor. You're stupid. You're a product of bad choices. You're lazy. You're always going to be hanging around the productive people like us. Think of what religion says. The only ones who will ever see God are the good and the upright. The keepers of the law. The gospel says both of you are wrong. You know what the gospel says? Everyone's the same. Regardless of education, regardless of bank account, regardless of social standing, regardless of constitution, regardless of ability, everyone is the same. Everyone is poor and broken and needy and in need of grace, and that's what Mary's singing about. None of us qualify for anything but judgment. And then look what Mary says. He fills the hungry with good things, and the rich he sends away empty. In other words, he makes the privileged mute and makes the poor sing. And what do they sing? Not some sentimental carol that panders to the emotions, but a song of supernatural grace. Where the me's turn to he's. And where the my's turn to we's. And the question the Magnificat asks me is this. What carol am I singing? What carol are you singing this Christmas? Think about that. Amen.